going to read to you in just a minute from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, verses 1 through 6. If you don't mind opening it, your Bible there. Um, I don't know if you've ever been put in a position uh, where I'm sure most of you have had to other, ask others for letters of recommendation um, for people that would be a reference for you. Or if you've ever had to serve as a reference, many, some of you have had to do this a lot. You have to do this regularly. Uh, that's something that's been a big part of my life, writing reference letters, making calls, and looking for some for myself at times. But have you ever gotten a call from somebody and they were asking for a reference for somebody that you were not able to recommend? And you didn't know exactly what to say. I've been put in that situation quite a few times where you, you get a call and you are the reference for somebody that there is no way you are willing to recommend. And it makes me feel horrible. I'm so curious why they put me down as a reference. This has happened to me several times. Sometimes I'm politically correct about it. If it's a lazy person, you can say, you will be very blessed to get this person to work for you. <laughs> Other times, I'm just honest. Uh, you know, and I've, I have said, um, I'm going to be really honest with you. This is probably the wrong person for this job. You know, and it's, it's tough. But in the time of Paul, uh, letters of recommendation were everything. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have phones. They didn't have anything like this. And when one person came from one place to another, particularly with the church, you find it all over the New Testament. I didn't realize this until just recently, how many times letters of recommendation are used. Paul recommended Phoebe to the church in Rome, in Romans 16. The church commended Apollos to Achaia in Acts 18. Paul commended the Corinthians that were bearing the gift to Jerusalem. Philemon, the book of Philemon is actually a commendation. It's a recommendation for Onesimus. And so this is something you find all over the New Testament. This is a common practice. Listen, I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to put my signature on it. And you have my backing for whatever this is. Lodging, food, your ability to speak in front of a group of people, whatever it is. And Paul begins his letter to Corinth with these, uh, well, this, this section with these words. This is an ancient letter of recommendation. I don't know why I put it up there. It's just a papyrus with Greek letters on it, but that's what it is. Here we go. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. Now, I'm not going to advance my slides, but I'm going to keep reading in the text here. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, what I want to show you before I kind of get into this message, because this message means a whole lot to me. But what I want to show you first is what an important theme this is in 2 Corinthians. This is how many times he comes back to this topic. Um, Seven times he addresses this. The first one. 2 Corinthians 3.1. The next is in the next chapter. We set forth the truth plainly. We commend ourselves to every man, uh, man's conscience in the sight of God. Then in the next chapter, chapter 5, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. 
2 Corinthians chapter 6, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Then in chapter 10, we don't dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. Again, in that same chapter, it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And then finally in chapter 12, I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles. So we're going to get to that when we get later into the study. But what I wanted you to see right now is that throughout this book, he keeps coming back to this idea of I'm commended to you. Um, and this is how you know what is genuine and what is not genuine. He's defending his gospel. So I want you to put yourself in Paul's position. This man sacrificed everything. This man gave up a life working with the Sanhedrin, probably not a part of the Sanhedrin, but he was on that path. And the Sanhedrin, I'm, I use that word, in, in Israel, that would be the Supreme Court. This is something highly important. You are the 70 elders in Jerusalem of all of Israel. This is the Sanhedrin. He was a part of that. He was educated under one of the greatest teachers of their day. He was somebody. And he was on a path to be a somebody, right? Whatever happened to Paul, to Saul, to transform his life to the point of changing a name, and becoming Paul, and living a life of incredible sacrifices, going through beatings, going through imprisonments, going through a life of complete sacrifice. And he comes, and he fathers this church. He comes, and he says, I want to bring Christ to you, and he does everything he can to nurture them in his faith. And he has sacrificed everything he is for what he's doing. And now another group of people have come into the picture and they push themselves on the people. He, he indicates in the previous chapter that they peddle the word of God. It's not from sincerity. That they push themselves on people. And now all of a sudden, Paul's credibility is called into view. And can you imagine, after you've sacrificed so much, you've been a parent, you've done everything you could to show the genuineness of your, your gospel and what you represent, that you would be called into question and that your gospel would be called into question. Now what I want to let you know is Paul... I believe, has the humility that there's no way he would want to talk about these things. We're going to talk about that later in the book. He doesn't want to build himself up. He's not the kind of guy that's going to come before a church and say, these are all my credentials. It's great to be here. You're blessed to have me. That's not who Paul was. But the reason Paul has to go there throughout 2 Corinthians is to defend his own gospel. To defend something that is genuine and something that is real. And it's for Christ that he has to step in and start defending himself. Uh, when he gets into some of this stuff. Uh, but I want to, I want to kind of go through this and first I want to talk about what it is to be a letter from Christ because throughout this book, you're going to be introduced to a series of metaphors for what a Christian is. Um, they were important, uh, these kind of metaphors, uh, in Christ's teaching. He said we were salt, light, sheep, branches on a vine. And John 3, Christ even said that we're like the wind. I like that one. But in 2 Corinthians, he's going to say you're the aroma of Christ, your letters from Christ, your jars of clay, your tents, your ambassadors. The whole opening of the book is to say, this is who you are. This is your mission. This is your purpose in this world. And he keeps going through various metaphors to bring us to that and what that means. Um, I want you to think about what that message is to you. Uh, and, and I hope this is a sobering message. I hope it's a message that convicts you. So... Think about what your favorite book of the Bible is. 
Um, most of you have one. Uh, most of my close friends, Melinda would say, I don't have one. That it's whatever I'm teaching from. Um, it's 2 Corinthians. She knows the truth. That's my favorite book. But um, think about why it means something to you. Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew. You get excited about it. There's this kingdom thread. And if you really like Matthew, you're like, man, check out this kingdom. Look at what he's doing. He's paralleling himself to Moses. He's paralleling himself to Joshua. He's doing this incredible thing with David on the throne. This is Matthew. Mark, man, look at this This. This. Great power and great authority in showing how he has authority over everything. Even the wind and the waves. Even the demons. Luke. Man, check out the Gospel of Luke. He's a servant. He puts himself at the feet of all men. Humility is what marks Christ in the book of Luke. John. That one gets all kinds of crazy with amazingness. But John. um, God in the flesh, looking into the heart of every man, seeing what is truly in the heart of every man, bringing out weird threads like water and light that are woven through the Gospels. And you get excited about this stuff. You look at it and say, man, this is crazy. But my good friend Sean asked me one time a very powerful question. And he said, what is the Gospel according to Jeff? What is the Gospel according to you? What threads are there? What themes are there? And how is that portrayed in your life? The thing is, we know this, um, that most people will never really read the Bible. Most, most simply won't. Um, they'll touch on it. They'll brag that they've read it. Maybe I've read it once or something like that. But as far as living in the book, when Christians talk about things like threads in Matthew or um, ideas that are in Isaiah. It's a foreign language. And if you think about it, and this is where this really comes home to me, that's what this passage is saying is, you are the gospel. It's written on you. It's written on your heart. You are a living epistle from God. You are known. This is what the text says. You are known and read by everybody. And the only experience with the gospel that most people will ever have, how about that, is in your life. It's in you and it's in your experience and it's in how we demonstrate Christ. We were talking in class this morning. It was, it was uh, man, Carrie, you're a brave man. Um, but I loved class. And we were talking in class this morning about um, how we perceive the law of Christ and who we are in Christ and the church, and how do we go about laws, and how are we to perceive the New Testament? And if, a lot of you are like me. You grew up, at a, I forgot my Bible. I left it back over here. Um, a lot of you are like me, that uh, you grew up with this idea that there's two parts to this book, the gilded part in the back that we call the Old Testament, and the part in the, in the front that um, is a little bit more well-read that we would call the New Testament. And there was an idea that we were not under the Old Testament, but we were now under the New Testament. And I'm going to kind of expose something that's not true about that, and it's something I've gone to a lot, but it's an important thing that we really distinguish here. But there's this idea that we're not under the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, but rather we're under the 27 books of the New Testament. The first problem with that is the early church didn't have what? 
the New Testament. They were under a new covenant. But they didn't have a book. Well, they did once Paul started writing. His were the first letters. But where are you when you don't have a book? What's left? What do I have to cling to? What is my gospel? What is my covenant? What is it that I'm under? And this passage really lays it out there because the truth is, you were never under the Old Testament. You were under the what? The Old Covenant, which is represented in the Old Testament, but it's a relationship to the law that we're talking about. It's something where it's written down, and what we ended up doing is making the mistake of turning the 27 books of the New Testament into a new covenant and thereby treating it as a new version of the old law. And a lot of you know what I'm talking about, to know what it is to take the books of the New Testament, the writings of the New Testament, and turn them into a form of legalism, a form of law. A good example of it is one time, and and I won't get into the scary stuff Carrie was getting into a little bit, I will. But a lot of it is, okay, I was in a church one time and we said, we are not going to clap hands in this church. Y'all have been there before, you know this, you've, you've heard this kind of, it's wrong to clap hands, we're not going to applause. Listen, it's one thing if a church makes rules, makes laws, I won't get into those things. But what they did is they felt uncomfortable making a law or a rule for the church outside of scripture. And so they tried to root it in scripture. And so they went to Ezekiel 25. Ezekiel 25 says, Because you clapped your hands, says the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against you. Now, what we just did is super weird. Um, But what we just did is we tried to take a teaching and we tried to take a practice and say, I'm going, well, the implications were crazy. You just condemned every church that claps heads to hell. I mean, it was just a horrible thing what you ended up doing with this. We've been guilty of doing this with God's word a lot. Now, the problem is this. If I'm not under a letter, now, is Jeff sitting here saying, therefore, we don't obey the teachings of the New Testament? Listen, I'm teaching from the New Testament. I I sit at God's feet. This is... But Paul's point here is this. I'm trying to take the law and take it off of your minds and off of your actions and off of the paper. And I'm trying to make it a law that is a law of the heart. I'm trying to transform who you genuinely and really are before this world. Ryan made a comment this morning. He said this, and he was quoting Christ here. You know the tree because of its fruit. You know the genuineness of somebody's in Christ because of the fruit of their life. It's not how persuasive their speaking is. It's not whether they can quote Greek or not. It's not the number of degrees behind their name. The truth is, it's the fruit and the validity of the message and the power of life change that that message brings. That was Paul's point when he spoke to the church at Corinth. This is what's going on. Romans 8.16 says this, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit, that we are God's children. Again, in 2 Corinthians 3, it says, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. The truth of the authenticity of the message and what the Spirit of Christ is in my life is life change. It's being conformed to the image of Christ. That is the mark of the gospel itself, is that transformation that's taking place um, inside of me. And then he says this, um, Such confidence, this is verse 4, such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. 
Uh, this one really gets, gets to me. Look at this verse. Such confidence is this. I want to ask you this, and this is a really important question to me today. Is it okay to be confident about your faith? Is, is being certain a sin? Is being certain something that we should be valued? Th- those questions to me seem ridiculous. And it, and it seems ridiculous that I would even ask that. But now we live in a time and in a culture where certainty is looked at as being backwoods. It's not okay to be certain. It's not okay to be absolutely 100%. I know that this is true. Uh, we were at a conference, Veritas Forum. Um, it makes me smart to say I was at a Veritas Forum, so I had to throw that into my sermon. But we were at a Veritas Forum um, just a couple of days ago. Steve was there, and a couple of us were in this forum. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, I thought it was really healthy. But at the same time, there were so many times during the discussion, uh, and the, the topic was, is it irrational to believe in God? And um, I'm not sure that one side even addressed that question. But one side um, stood up and said, well, of course it's rational to believe in God. It would be really offensive for somebody to say it's irrational. And then it was kind of dropped at that. They talked about other things, and I don't think the guy ever said um, one thing or the other. But he kept saying, well, it's hard to be certain. You believe your way, I believe my way. Nobody can be certain. And one of the comments at the end of the forum was even, well, don't you think it's arrogant? To have an opinion? One of the students asked, don't you think it's arrogant to have an opinion at all? And I was just sitting here going, man, I am dumbfounded by all this. Because at the end of the day, do you know what Hebrews 11 says about faith? It's being certain. That's what faith is. It's being sure of what we hope for. And certain about what we don't see. Now, I'm like you, and I know all of us know this. I'm like you. If I had doubts in my life, man, I understand doubt. I get doubt. I love to talk about doubt. I have struggled. But it is not wrong at all, and it's beautiful when you arrive at certainty and find certainty. And the Christian shouldn't be ashamed to be certain at all. And this is what Paul is coming out with and saying here. G.K. Chesterton said this, Merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of having, having an open mind as opening the mouth is to finally shut it on something solid. I love that. It's great that you consider yourself open-minded. But the whole concept of having an open mind is to eventually shut it on reality and something solid. And I believe that that's what you find in Christ. The book of 1 John, if you struggle with this, the book of 1 John is dedicated to this theme. He keeps saying, by this we know, by this we know, by this we're certain. So that's really important to me. Um, so two points I wanted to make out of this, and I love this next verse. He says this, he has made us, um, now that we are competent in ourselves to, to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The first part of what he said there is, he has made you competent. Your estimation of your giftedness or lack thereof is not the determining factor in your effectiveness in being used by God. It is the empowerment and presence of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. 
You don't get to determine at the end of the day your value in representing God's kingdom. You aren't the one that determines that, thank God. Because at the end of the day, I would stand here and say, Jeff is a very poor representation. I don't have. There's so many things that I'm like you. I would look at my life and say, I'm just not the one. I'm not qualified. And, and Paul sits here and he says this. It's not you. It's not your gifts. It's not your abilities. It's not what you perceive in yourself to say, okay, I'm willing to do this. It's what the Spirit of God does through you. It's not about how good you feel that you are, are in talking about the Lord. It's how the Lord speaks through you, even when you're unaware of what you're doing. Did you understand what I just said? Some, so many of us, if we had this conversation and we were in a small group and we would say, man, we need to share Christ. And then, believe me, I think we need to do this, you know, in an active way. But if we talked about sharing Christ, we would sit there and say, I just don't feel equipped. I don't feel like that's something I can do. Maybe that's not my calling. But so much of what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 3 is saying this. It's not something you even decide to do. It's what the Spirit is doing through you. Regardless of whether you're even aware of it or not. When somebody is in Christ and they've got the joy of Christ in their life, they've got the certainty of Christ in their life, they've got the life change, they don't even need to be aware of what they're doing. God is working through them and speaking to this world. They are an epistle of Christ. They are a letter sent to the world because of the way they live their life. And I know that's something that we've kind of played down a whole lot because whenever we get into a class about evangelism or we talk about evangelism, inevitably it's going to go to, really it's how you live your life before the world and people think that's a cop-out. And in some ways it can be. But the truth is, a transformed life When you really witness it and you really experience it, it's a powerful testimony to who God is in this world. It's a prophecy that was all over the Old Testament, and I want to kind of bring it home to this message. This is Ezekiel 11. I'll give them an undivided heart, and I'll put a new spirit in them. I'll remove from their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Again, in in chapter 36, he says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. And then again in Jeremiah 24, he says, I will give them a heart to know me. Acts, the book of Acts is excited about those prophecies in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And it brings it out and it says, God, and quoting the book of Joel, he says, God is going to pour out his spirit on all mankind. He's going to pour it out on the Jew and he's going to pour it out on the Gentile. Now, what I want to kind of bring this to, and, and I, I pray that this is something that we can kind of carry out um, in our churches, and I, I've seen it, but what happens is this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, today in religious circles, we hate that phrase because it's a, a phrase that's been used to contrast baptism. So you have baptism that a lot of people call water baptism, and then you have baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they're considered two different things. It's a weird thing in religion. It's the dumbest debate you've ever heard in your life. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was what did take place in Acts 2, Acts 8, and Acts 10. 
The Spirit was poured out on the Jew, Acts 2, the Samaritan, Acts 8, the Gentile, Acts 10. And all three occasions, or at least in two of them, they quote these verses. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. God has poured out His Spirit on the Jew first, and then on the Gentile. Humanity was baptized in God's presence and opening His arms to the world. That's what these verses are about. Baptism is me saying yes. It's me saying, the first is passive. You don't have any choice. God pours out his spirit on mankind. You have no decision in the matter. The second is active. It's my decision of covenant with God. When I stand before him and it says this, will you enter into covenant with me? He says, as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves in Christ. But I believe this, when I make a covenant with God, a faithful commitment with Him, and I'm gonna, I gotta bring this back to 2 Corinthians, when I make a faithful commitment to my God, He gives me the gift of the Holy Spirit. Something that is inside me that is actual, that is real. What I believe about the Holy Spirit is this. First thing, and this is super important to me, so bear with me here. The first thing is this. It's not a separate person from God Himself. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God. Okay? I'm going to leave that at that. Secondly, I believe that it is not simply something that is invisible, that it's there, maybe it's there, maybe it's not there. I don't know. What's the point? It's something that actively transforms and gives us power that is way beyond ourselves. I believe that God's presence and His Spirit in His life is transforming me from the inside out as a potter reaching his hand inside of a pot and forming the inside. I believe the Spirit is at work conforming our thinking to his thinking, our hearts to his hearts, and who we are to him. It's something that is active inside of us. The final thing I need to say about the Spirit is this. You have the complete ability to reject or suppress it. Absolutely in your life. And it's something that will itch at you and gnaw at you. Someone came to me just recently, it wasn't too long ago, and said, I have no peace in my life. I have just so much unrest, and there's this battle going on, and I can't get rid of this, all these dark thoughts. I said, you know what part of the problem is? It's not the darkness in your life. If you had a life full of darkness, you wouldn't have this unrest. The problem is the light in your life that is itching and gnawing at you to say, this is a life I have to leave and I have to go towards something different. It's that transformation that Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 3 when he looks at the church and he says this, listen, oh, there are so many churches out there. There's so many different gospels. There's so many Christians that have come to your life and misrepresented the gospel because as living epistles, there are a lot of false epistles, right? There are a lot of false gospels represented in people's hearts and people's lives. There are so many things with me, and I was thinking about it all through class this morning because it brought back a lot of bad memories for me. There are so many things that I've seen in the church growing up that I've been like, I can't stand being a part of a group that would be rep- that's like this, that would fight about the dumbest things imaginable, that's arrogant and mean. And I've seen so much of that, just like you have. I've seen so much of it in my life. And unfortunately, I've been so much of that in my life. And I've thought about that, and I've thought, man, isn't it true that people look at the church today and they don't judge us by, based on what the book of John says? You are a letter from Christ to this world. 
You are as though God pinned it on human hearts and says, here, world, I'm giving you this. And that is the responsibility. Second Corinthians is awesome. Because what it's going to do is it's going to say this. Jeff, I'm going to use my name because I don't want, no, I'm going to use Melinda because I like this. Melinda, that was the wrong choice. (laughs) I created you for a reason and I created you for a purpose. And I want to humble you by letting you know the power of what you are being called to do. You are a letter from me to this world, you are a gospel. Representing me to this world. That's the burden you will bear as a Christian. Is you are that letter to this world. And it gets more powerful when he gets into jars of clay. In the next chapter and what this means. But this is who you are. And this is a responsibility you have in this world. To represent Christ well. Um. I want to ask just a specific prayer um, over you. If this is your first time to come to Meadowlark, um, or whatever it is, um, and you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, the sermon's almost over, good, let's sing. I want to stop for a minute and just, I want to speak to your heart and I want to have a prayer over you. Um, in so many ways, We're weak. I'm unqualified. You are too. But understanding what Paul is trying to give the church and to give you this morning, when you sit and you say, okay, God, I'm here. What do you want? What is this whole Christian thing supposed to be? To a world that thinks Christianity is primitive and a joke, you stand as a testimony of truth, of life, of hope, and of what true love actually is. You stand as a testimony of all of these things. And as a Christian, as somebody who bears the name Christ, this isn't something we boast in. This is Paul's point. I don't boast in this as though any of this is from me. As though if you knew me, there's nothing there to boast in. But I will boast in the power of Christ in an individual. I will boast in the power of Christ in my own life. I'll boast in what he's done. And I will represent something before this world that I don't have to stand in front of the masses like I had to witness a couple of nights ago where somebody says, maybe there's just nothing. Maybe we're just here. Maybe there is no point. And somebody asks a question about morality and what is morality rooted in. And and there really isn't even a lot of certainty there. And then you get into questions about love. Does it even exist? And in Christ, the answer is absolutely, yes. And I'm filling your life with meaning and purpose. God has sent you. This is where I was going. God has sent you as a letter to someone. Okay, letters go somewhere. And I want you to think about who that letter is intended for. God has written a letter through you. To someone. And the people in your environment, in your family, in your home, and in your work, and in your world, you are actually, according to 2 Corinthians 3, 
the gospel of Christ written on your heart to those people. I hope that brings you to your knees the way it does me. Uh, That's a powerful burden. It's a powerful responsibility. And I pray that we'll bear it well. Uh, My God, I just want to come before you and I'm I'm asking for um, clarity in what you're teaching. I'm I pray, Father, that um, we would understand that the great message you're sending to this world is not written with paper and ink. It's not given from pulpits. It's the power of a life change and the power of the Spirit that is alive in your body today. And I pray, God, that just as people can look at the stars and look at the mountains and celebrate and clear and obvious and loving mind, I pray, Father, that people will look at your people today. The world would see your people. And they wouldn't see people that think they're better than anyone else or anything like that. But that they would see the very presence of God and the power of his presence in the lives of his children. And I ask that blessing over your body today. I celebrate you for those people you've put in my life that represent that this morning. It's in Christ we come before you and celebrate you. Amen. Let's stand and sing.